Well, last week, we officially made it through Daniel chapter 7, uh, made it to the final verse there. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn back to Daniel 7, because instead of jumping into the next chapter, we're going to go ahead and pick back through this chapter to make sure that we really see what is going on. In other words, I'd like to just summarize all of what's been happening in this last chapter in the vision that Daniel saw and then saw interpreted so that we can understand it as best as we can before moving forward. Have you ever picked up someone else's glasses, someone who has a different prescription than you, who has eyes are different than yours, and put them on and all of a sudden things become kind of blurry? You have to squint extra hard in order to make things out. If you grab the wrong pair, everything will look distorted. But if you grab the right pair, things will much, uh, become much clearer. Reading eschatological passages, that's passages that we usually think of that refer to the end times, can be something like that. It's like picking up a pair of lenses when we look at these kinds of passages, because you and I most certainly come to these types of texts with a certain kind of lens on our eyes. And if it's the wrong lens, then we'll walk away with a distorted view of that text. But if it's the right one, it'll become clearer. So how can we know that we're viewing or interpreting a particular text with the right lenses on? We're, we're looking at a text in the right way. Well, in a very similar way as we would with a pair of glasses, by putting them on and then checking, putting on the others and then checking again, and then another one, and go, ah, there, now it's clear. I can read the E on the eye chart. This can be a difficult thing for us to do as believers because we tend to come to text with presuppositions. We tend to assume that we should read text through certain lenses. And even if we don't specify or say that out loud, that is very typical of us. In fact, it, it, experiences may hand us a pair of glasses, a pair of lenses through which we look at certain texts. It's been my experience uh, that the dominant, the majority view in the Western uh, American Christianity is looking at these kinds of texts through a particular lens that, to be sure, make a few verses look clearer. When you look at the rest of the texts that are referring to the end times, they become much muddier. In fact, I think this is one of the biggest contributing factors to why Christians today oftentimes don't invest a lot of energy in looking at those texts because they're, they have a certain kind of lens on that when they look at those texts, it's so confusing, close the book of Revelation, just move on because it's too challenging. Last week, I explained that I think eschatology matters. When I use that word, it's, it's not that fancy of a word. It just refers to the study of the end times, the last things. There's a weird attitude that floats around Christian circles today that eschatology doesn't matter, but I just don't think that that's true. It's in the Bible. The Lord Jesus Christ spoke many of these things. His apostles wrote them down. They've been preserved throughout the ages. In fact, last week I made the note that there's one book in the entirety of sacred scripture that in its introduction says that if you read it out loud and hear it read out loud, you will be blessed, and that's the book of Revelation. Now, we don't spend a lot of time at our church talking about eschatology simply because we're a church that loves expository preaching. We open a text of the Bible and just make our way through. And if we see those categories of doctrine there, we talk about them. If not, we just let the text speak. 
Well, Daniel brings us to this topic. There's no way to make it through Daniel without having some of these questions come to mind. And Daniel 7 is a perfect example of an eschatological passage. Now, this is not a first-order issue, to be sure. In other words, you can be a Christian who loves the Lord, submits to God's word, and yet you can disagree with your brothers and sisters on certain end times details. In fact, at our church, you don't have to hold to any one particular end times view in order to be a member. You can be considered a member of our church in good standing, no problems or issues regarding your end times view. I just want to read for you the summary statement in the Mission Church's Statement of Faith regarding the end times. This is what we come to agreement upon as a church. We believe in the personal and visible return of the Lord Jesus Christ to earth, and that he will build his church despite opposition until his return. We believe in the resurrection of the body, the final judgment, the eternal joy of the redeemed in the presence of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the endless suffering of the wicked. That's a pretty simplified and concise summary of the end times that we all need to have in mind. In other words, almost all the major views of end times can fit with that particular statement. Even our pastors at the church here have unity on eschatology and not uniformity. You want to see a variety of different views and how we think about those things? Talk to the pastors at the church. We'll lovingly, happily express to you some of the differing views and why we hold one over the other. Now, if you're not a believer today, or if this is your first time at our church, we want you to know eschatology, end time stuff, is not just our, our shtick. This isn't what we just do every time we, we come to a passage. In fact, the way I'll be preaching parts of Daniel 7 are a little bit different today than we typically will. We usually just read through a, a big portion of text, and we just explain one verse after the other after the other. Today, as a summary view of a chapter, is a little bit different. If you are not a believer today, you'd say, I'm not even a Christian. I'm, more, I'm kind of just curious about what y'all believe about certain things. I want you to know that we have many more things that we consider far more important than this. First order to us is that you understand that as a sinner before a perfect and holy God, you must repent of your sins and turn in saving faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. And his death on the cross will operate as a substitution for the punishment that you and I deserve. By belief, by faith alone in Jesus Christ, you can have eternal life. And all the end times things that we're going to look at and discuss and, and consider will then be applied to you, eternity in heaven forever, because of your faith in Jesus. Not your works, not your good deeds, not all your good sentiments, but because of Jesus alone. We want for you to know the gospel. But the Christian life is one that ought to be devoted to God's word. This is our Bible. This is our manual for life. This is what we want to know and understand and study in order to grow, in order to live out our days. And it contains many passages that refer to these end times things. So again, if you're not a member or a regular attender of the Mission Church, we want you to see how seriously we take these texts and we want for you to join us in that. Last week, as we concluded the, the text of Daniel 7, I explained that the majority of views of Daniel 7 can be divided into two camps. 
those who think that most of the events in Daniel 7 are in the past. They've already taken place. And those who think that most of the events in Daniel are in the future. They've not yet taken place. Last week I explained that I put myself in this camp. I think that most of the events described in Daniel 7 are still future. We're looking forward to those things from our perspective. Now, not everyone in each of these camps agree on the identity of the fourth beast and the time and the nature of his demise, which we'll get into today. And this is true for both the mostly past and mostly future camps. However, in the mostly past camp, those who look at the text and go, I think most of this stuff is done, there's far more agreement than over here regarding what future events are in mind when we look at this text. So, so over here, you have people who all go, yes, Daniel 7 is talking about future events. And as you discuss around the table, you go, oh, whoa, 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 we're, we're, not, we're not talking about the same thing at all. We're both talking future, but very different futures. So in order to have greatest clarity as I walk through this today, I'm actually going to divide out the mostly future camp into two groups. And so we're going to go through the text today considering three different views as we review this vision. One, that's mostly past, and two, that are mostly future. Those are the three lenses through which we're going to take a look at this text. I think this will serve you well. The names of these views are the futurist, preterist, and idealist views. They refer to the lenses through which one will view these kinds of passages in the Bible. Not just Daniel 7, but any of the apocalyptic, judgment, future, end times kind of camps. I hope that this will be helpful for you. To be sure, you could add a few more views if you're looking at other passages, but regarding Daniel 7, these three will do. So we're going to revisit the vision again. But this time, we will peer through each of these three lenses in order to get greatest clarity, in order to figure out which is the right one to view through. We're going to read through a summary of the vision one more time. If you can follow with me in the Bible, I'm going to go ahead and read verses 17 and 18, because that's an angelic summary of the entire vision that preceded this portion. I'm going to read this out loud. We're going to pray and then go back through a few more times considering the lenses. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, this morning I have a weighty endeavor. My hope is to help us uh, maybe take off the lenses we've been granted, we've been given through a variety of different ways in our lives and our experience, and just take a look at this text as objectively as we can. Lord, we just want to understand what you've written. Father, I don't think that you wrote this text, preserved it throughout history for us in order to confuse, but for it to be a blessing for us. And Father, if there is any trouble with texts like these, the trouble is in us because you are perfect, you are faithful, your words are true. And Father, we can know that even if we struggle to understand some of the texts of Scripture, it is because of our faultiness, it's because of our sinfulness, if it's because of our incapacities perhaps even just in our human nature. But you, O oh great and wise and perfect God, know all things. 
And Lord, I believe that there will come a day where all of us will stand in glory and look back on the events of history and say, oh, that's what you meant. We'll be able to have a clarity that leads to our eternal joy and worship and praise for you, our perfect God. Father, please help us to align and understand these things as best as we can, not just that our heads would swell, but that our hearts would burst with love for you and others, and we'd be filled with joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This vision that Daniel had was summarized in the two verses we just read, 17 and 18. But it described a series of of, of portions, of of scenes that are kind of played out before Daniel's eyes. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go back through it. I'm just going to reference each of those scenes again three times all the way through. And the first time, we're going to look through the preterist lens. The second time, the futurist lens. And the third, the idealist lens. And the application point for us today is that as believers, we would inspect and investigate and learn to love and care for uh, these kinds of passages. So let's first consider this vision looking through the preterist lens. That is the mostly past lens. The first section, verses 2 through 8, we saw in the vision three beasts coming out of the sea. One was like a lion, uh, one was like a, a bear, the other was like a leopard, and each of them had distinctive features. And as I've covered previously, there is near unanimous agreement that the first three beasts are the ancient kingdoms of Babylon, Persia, and Greece. It is the identity of the fourth beast where we find our first point of significant variance. The preterist lens views the majority of this text as past, and so this fits nicely with the first three beasts. Everyone's in agreement. Those are past. The fourth beast to the preterist, though, is quite obviously Rome. It follows the uniform succession of these kingdoms, and its dominion is both broader and more terrifying than those that came before it. But there is something historically very significant about Rome, which makes it an even more obvious candidate for the fourth beast that Daniel sees here. Jesus is born into this earth during the days of the Roman Empire. And he establishes his eternal kingdom at that time. Jesus says on multiple occasions, things like, now the kingdom of God has come. He said, it is is in your midst. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's the point at which he plants and begins. He starts his church. The beast is described later as having 10 horns, which are later confirmed to be 10 kings. That's what the text tells us. And another horn or king, rises up and he kills three of the kings before him. Now again, through the preterist lens, that past viewing lens, most preterists see the ten horns as either symbolic or literal number of Roman emperors, a succession of the Roman rulers. And the majority of preterists who hold this view see the little horn as referring to the Roman emperor Nero. That little horn is the Roman Emperor Nero who ruled during the 60s AD. After Jesus died, he was buried, resurrects, and ascends into heaven. During the days of the church's birth. This is the same Nero who made war on the saints, quite literally, just like the text here says. He prevailed over them. He wore out the saints. 
the text tells us here. And Nero's persecution of Christians is most certainly infamous. And so the preterist sees that as a clear indication. That's what's in mind. That's the little horn. This beast is Rome. Ten horns are Caesar's. The last one is Nero. Verses 9 through 12 in Daniel's vision tell us about the ancient of days, seated in judgment on a throne, white hair and and fire coming out from his throne, issuing out, and 10,000 by 10,000 standing before him, and the books are open for judgment. The fourth beast is vanquished. Viewing this text, again, through the preterist lens, means seeing the scene described here as a past event to us. While there are a few different perspectives on this, admittedly, most preterists view this event as taking place at the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. So in other words, they they, they view the judgment that's being leveled against that little horn and, and that beast is actually the events taking place in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. The next portion of Daniel's vision, verses 13 through 14, tell us of a son of man that approaches the ancient of days and is given dominion. Nearly all preterists are in full agreement that this scene, verses 13 and 14, refers to Jesus' ascension into heaven. In fact, nearly all post-millennialists, if you're post-millennial, you know who you are. You're proud of being post-mill. If you're, you know how you know if someone's post-mill? Don't worry, they'll tell you. <laughs> Almost all post-mills see this passage through the preterist lens. Those aren't exactly the same thing. What I just said, post-millennial is, a, is another, is a view of the end times, but it sees these texts through that preterist lens. It's one of the reasons they call themselves post-mill. We'll talk about that in future weeks. And they regard this as one of their most emphasized texts, and for good reason. Because Jesus, in Matthew chapter 28, in the conclusion of the gospel of Matthew, He says, just as he's preparing to ascend into heaven, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. Jesus' giving his great commission to his saints is built on the certain truth that all authority is currently retained by King Jesus, was granted to him as a result of his resurrection And was true back then and is true today. And so the preterist, knowing that that's true, knowing that that's what Jesus said then, will go, well, that's clearly verses 13 and 14. That has to be the ascension because that's when Jesus was granted that kind of dominion, a special authority over the earth, heaven and earth. And that's what the preterist would see in 13 and 14. And that's the conclusion of the vision. That's, that's the scenes. We, we see the beasts come out. We see the judgment from the Ancient of Days. And then we see the Son of Man given dominion. The rest of the text just is a further interpretation of that vision. Now, I think there are a few problems with viewing this through a preterist lens. When you're looking through that lens, there's a few places that you kind of squint and go, ah, it's really fuzzy. At least that's what I think is the case. The first problem that I think is true with the preterist lens is that verses 9 through 12 are out of order for verses 13 and 14 in the preterist view. In other words, it doesn't seem chronological. It breaks up. Now, for the record, this is not uncommon in the Bible, especially in end times passages where there will be a a telling of an event and the one that follows it in the text is not necessarily the next 
chronologically. That happens all the time, admittedly. But here, it does sound like the chronology matters. It sounds like the order matters because what happens in 9 through 12 is that the beast has his dominion taken from him and then that dominion is given to the Son of Man. It sounds like that succession. In fact, it would be odd to say that the beast retains authority for a period of time at the same time that Jesus also has that same authority. So to say it in a different way, if 9 through 12 is referring to the events of 70 AD, roughly 40 years after Jesus' ascension, when he was granted dominion, then not only is the text out of order, but the overlap of who has authority creates a problem. Do you see that? In other words, Jesus has given dominion that is still belonging to the beast for 40 more years. I think the chronology matters. Not only is it stated right here, but in the interpretations, several more times that order flows. Right here it flows in 17 and 18. Four great beasts or four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Again, as Daniel describes in verse 21 and 22, and then in the final interpretation yet again, that same order. The beasts had power, now the saints have it. That's the order. So that's the first problem with the preterist view. Second problem with the preterist view is this. Verses 9 through 12 tell us of the judgment of the fourth beast. He's destroyed at this point in the chronology. And this doesn't sound to me at all like Nero. Nero didn't even live up until the time of Jerusalem's destruction. He died before that time. He didn't make it to that important 70 AD event. I don't think that Nero can satisfy what we see in the destruction of this particular horn, this beast that's been destroyed. And if you notice, the text actually said in verse 11, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed. So it sounds like what prompts the destruction is the arrogant, blasphemous, boastful words from this little horn that then draws the ire of God and destroys him. But again, that's not how the history played out, even according to the preterist view. Nero reigns for a period of time. He dies years later, several years later. Jerusalem is sacked and then destroyed. Third reason I think this is a problem, the preterist view is unclear, is that Rome was not destroyed in 70 A.D., In fact, 70 AD spurred on another few centuries of Roman authority and rule. If the whole point of the fourth beast is that it's to be identified with Rome, then what we should see at this judgment is Rome annihilated, his dominion taken away, his life destroyed. And yet, that's what we see in the text. And yet, the preterist view imagines the judgment being 70 AD. But if you and I were there in 70 AD at the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, if we were there during that time, we would not see a despondent Roman military saying, we lost. They would say, we won! We won! And they would carry on with many, many decades of atrocious martyrdom against Christians and power and authority all over wherever they ruled. I don't think that would satisfy the kind of judgment that's stated here in 9 through 12. The beast was annihilated, and that's the point. Additionally, I think that it's hard to describe 71 AD. It means right after the events of the destruction 
as fitting with the way that this text talks about the reign of the saints. The way that this text talks about the giving of dominion to Jesus and all those in him, the saints of the Most High. That's referenced one, two, three, four times in the text. Each of those describe a kind of peaceful experience, a forever dominion reigning type of experience. In fact, I'll read for you just real quickly what it says about that time period. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Another place it says, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. It's hard for me to imagine that in 71 AD, the Christians would celebrate and say, see, it's here. Everyone is serving and obeying him. I think the opposite would be true for many more centuries and even into our day. I don't think we could still today's, now everyone serves and obeys Jesus. I don't think we're even yet there. Again, that's the trouble with the preterist, the past view. It must be past. Lastly, the ten horns described in Daniel 7 are said to be ten kings. Ten kings. But a succession of kings in Rome, ancient Rome, don't fit with what the text says about these horns. Not only in Daniel 7, but the parallel passage in Revelation 13 through 17 talks about a beast just like this with ten horns. Those ten horns refer to ten kings. But even there and here, those aren't subsequent kings, one that follows after the next after the next. Those ten kings described both in this text and there reign concurrently. They work together. In fact, in Revelation 17, it says this about the ten horns. Listen, and the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power. But they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and their authority to the beast. So again, the, the texts of the Bible make it clear these aren't subsequent kings, successions of kings. One lives, and then he dies. The next one lives, then he dies. The next one doesn't work that way. It's actually a six, all ten operating contemporaneously, and perhaps little K kingdoms ruling over different uh, 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 governorships and regions, and they all combine together to give their power to the singular one beast. I think that's another problem with the preterist text. To be sure, there are a few things about the preterist lens that you can see here. And actually, uh, I don't disparage preterism itself. I actually do see plenty of passages in the New Testament where that lens fits the best for those texts. I just don't think that that satisfies what's going on in this passage here. Let's consider the vision again. Let's hit a reset and look at it one more time, but this time through the futurist lens. This was one of the two camps that thinks of things as mostly future. We just looked at preterist. We will now look at futurist and then idealist. Both of the next two view these events as future. With our futurist lens on, we look back again through verses 2 through 8. And first we see the three beasts coming out of the sea, followed by a fourth and more terrifying one. Again, this particular view also sees uh, those three beasts as the ancient kingdoms of Babylon, Persia, and Greece. And so there's not any disparity there. And the fourth, more terrifying beast, the futurist sees as Rome. But here's where we see a much different 
view of Rome from the futurist than we did from the preterist. Because in order for this text to be future, the futurist is thinking future stuff, then somehow we've got to get Rome from the past into the future. We have to see Rome in the past as somehow also Rome in the future because the futurist sees this as farther ahead of us. And this is how most futurists solve this. They see this fourth beast as primarily referring to a future revived or revitalized Rome. Most futurists will say that there will be a time where there will be yet another rise of the Roman Empire. It may not be called Rome. It may not even be geographically located in the same place. But most futurists would agree that there's a, there's a rise of another Rome, another, another bit of what we see this beast operating in the future. And so that must be what's happening. And the kind of destruction then being referred to here, the the terrifying stamping of the feet and the devouring of the landscape and the crushing everything that was left by the ones before it, that is all future tribulation that takes place after our time. It's not yet happened anywhere on earth. The ten horns then are ten earthly kings who will reign in the future someday. So there's agreement that there's 10 kings, but not past kings we're looking for in history, but there's future future kings. There's going to be a period, of time, a period of time in the future where 10 kings are going to come together. They're going to give their power to the one horn, and that's how things are going to play out. And almost all futurists agree together that the identity of the little horn is the Antichrist figure, the Antichrist figure. Most of the New Testament Antichrist texts are seen as referring to this little horn And ironically, on this, the preterists agree that those texts refer to the same thing. They go, yeah, the little horn is that Antichrist kind of thing. The difference is that the futurists say, yeah, but that's not yet here. That little horn is something that will come in the future. While the preterists will go, no, that little horn is something that came in the past. And all those other Antichrist texts came in the past. One of the advantages you see right here for the futurist is that because he sees this as future, he doesn't need to scour ancient history to make his description fit past events. He can simply expect that it will happen just like it says and call it done. Now, this may sound like an unfair advantage, but it is an advantage nonetheless. You can say, oh, it's going to look just like that sometime in the future. I don't have to explain much more. The next scene we saw was the Ancient of Days seated on the throne in judgment, and the fourth beast was vanquished. Because the futurist sees this as referring to a future judgment and destruction, they see that as something coming upon the Antichrist in our future. In fact, the the judgment that's usually seen here by the futurist in that lens is that this is referring to the destruction of the Antichrist figure that will usher in a 1,000-year period of time called the millennium. So looking forward in the future, the futurist says there will come an antichrist. There will come those ten kings together. Uh, They'll give their power to the one antichrist, little horn kind of figure. Jesus will come in judgment. This judgment is described in 9 through 12 where he's destroyed. And then a thousand years of millennial history will play out. Now, that's not explicitly mentioned in the text here, everybody will admit, but that is referenced in Revelation 20. And so a lot of people go, look, that, that's got to be what this is talking about. That must be what happens next is the millennium. And that's why the futurist sees verses 13 and 14 the way that he does. The Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days and is given dominion. That's what 
Daniel saw in the vision. But looking through a futurist lens, if we were to view it that way, we would see the kingdom being handed to Jesus at the beginning of his millennial reign. And so the reign of Christ, the dominion of Christ, and the reigning in his saints here would be seen as describing that period of 1,000 years, talked about in Revelation 20, that comes in the future. Now, just as with the Preterist text, there are some significant problems with the futurist, the purely futurist view of this text. And the first, you might have picked up on it, was the idea of the revived Rome. It's a bit awkward to see how the singular personification of a fourth beast refers to what is essentially two different empires, reigning 1,000 or 2,000 or many more years apart from each other. It's kind of weird that that beast just... It sounds like it's just a succession. It goes to the end. So it seems a little bit odd that that would go down, understandably. A second problem we see may be more significance, and it's the underemphasis on Jesus' current, current reign in all authority. As preterists are quick to point out, Jesus is reigning now. Jesus is not waiting for a future time in which he will receive all authority in heaven and on earth. Someday I'll get that. No, no, no. Jesus says, now, after his ascension, at his ascension, all authority has been given to him, both in heaven and on earth. So preterists are especially quick to point that out, because that's a That's a kind of a crowning point for the preterist view. But the futurist reading of this text and other texts like it tend to, at the very least, underemphasize Jesus' current rule and reign to such a degree that it seems hard to consider him ruling right now at all. That fourth beast is still in power and is still making his way through right now. Well, then in what way do we actually see Jesus today exercising his authority in heaven and on earth? Instead, the futurist emphasizes that the dominion here is a future dominion, not one that is, that is received today, not one that is being operated in today, but one that will come after the beast is judged. And this is one of the biggest differences between the millennial views that result from these lenses. I'm not going to get all the way into the millennial views today, but those different lenses tend to lead to different views of the end time. That's the whole point, why we're walking through this like this. In fact, those who see the the pre-millennial view, a a certain view of the end time, see this very different from the post-millennial types in their view because of what they, they think about this current age. Who's in control now? Who's in authority now? Who's reigning and ruling now? And while I would contend that all Christians could still answer that the same way, there is inevitably, inevitably become a distinction between the way that Christians in these two camps talk about and emphasize and highlight the reign of Christ today over and above the way that he will reign in the future. The underemphasis on Jesus' current reign is a problem. The third problem here is that it is the ancient of days who comes, and not just the Son of Man. We see this in verse 22, which actually tells us a little bit about the Son of Man coming. It says this, As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancient of days came. And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. 
The futurist view, not only from this text, but from other texts, sees a handful of distinct events that are all future to us. One of the events is the coming of Jesus, the Son of Man, in judgment. He's going to come and crush and destroy that Antichrist figure. But they see another and distinct future event as when God the Father, the Ancient of Days, descends from heaven to once and for all live with his saints. I'm read that to you in Revelation 21, verse 3, and then Revelation 22. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The text continues in Revelation to say, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. That's the new heavens and new earth. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. So the book of Revelation gives us greater description here that there will be a future time in which the Ancient of Days will come. He'll come in judgment and to rest upon the earth with his saints for all eternity. You and I get to be in the presence of God forever if we have saving faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. But the futurist views this text as explicitly referring to the coming of the Son in judgment 1,000 years prior to the coming of the Father in judgment and to the earth. And that's a major textual problem. Lastly, the last problem that I think that we can highlight here with the purely futurist view is that Daniel describes what sounds like final or ultimate Judgment. This event that's being described by Daniel sounds like the end. It doesn't sound like Daniel goes, and that's something that stops. Plenty more crazy ups and downs will happen throughout history, but just let's just stop there for now. The way that Daniel sees the vision, that the angel interprets it, that Daniel restates it, and that the angel interprets it yet again, four times it's stated here, it sounds final and ultimate. Look, it even says it here in the quick summary the angel gives. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Sounds pretty final. It would be a bit awkward to assume that thousand years of history, including bloodshed and death and a horde of God's enemies that outnumbers the sands on the shore and coming in a war against Jesus and his saints can be said to be true during that kind of statement. This is a problem with the view. The futurist believes that this event leads up to and describes the state of the millennium. But according to that same view, at the end of the millennium, Satan will be released, and there will eventually be so many enemies of God on earth that they will be, reading that out loud, their number is like the sand of the sea. That's what this period of history produces. It's hard to see how that fits with how verses 14, verses 27 and Daniel 7 here, how those things are referring to this event. Let me just read for you verse 27 again in, in Daniel's vision. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. But the result of the millennium is that all the dominions do not obey, but that a numberless horde comes against Jesus and his saints. That's the point we see at the end of the millennium. It'd be hard to imagine how that language fits with what we see at the end of the millennium. In other texts. So, well, in my opinion, the futurist view has some strengths, 
It is at the very least cumbersome to make it consistently fit with the entirety of the futurist view in other passages. Let's do one more time through, looking through an idealist lens. Remember, the idealist view, like the futurist view, sees the events of this vision as mostly future. So there will be plenty of agreement over here. Even though the idealist lens envisions a very different future. Uh, You might be well served to know that term idealist is oftentimes used to refer to a view of the book of Revelation, but it can definitely be utilized to talk about any end times passage, and it could certainly apply here. But if you were to search out idealist view, that's almost always going to bring you to the way we talk about the book of Revelation, which is a parallel to what we see in Daniel 7. So looking back through this again, Verses 2 through 8, again, describe the first three beasts coming out of the sea, followed by a fourth, more terrifying beast. Those three, like everyone has agreed so far, is it's Babylon, Persia, and Greece, those ancient empires. And the fourth beast is Rome, but not just Rome, and not just a revived earthly Rome, but the spiritual power behind Rome. For the record, this is not a major point of divergence from the other views because both the preterist and the futurist might agree, well, of course, there's spiritual power there. But the idealist view does a better job explaining how the fourth beast can refer to ancient Rome, present earthly kingdoms, and future earthly empires because it highlights the singular spiritual force behind many different Earthly rulers. I was searching this out. I found more than half a dozen uh, different, very clear commentators making this exact same point, even from a variety of different views. Robert Mount says this. I'll give you a quote. Looking at John in Revelation, referring to this same beast, he writes this. For John, the beast was the Roman Empire as persecutor of the church. Yet, the beast is more than the Roman Empire The beast has always been and will be in a final, intensified manifestation, the deification of secular authority, end quote. Jeffrey Wilson, in his commentary, writes, this beast represents the persecuting power of human government, first as manifested in the Roman Empire and later to be realized in full in the reign of the Antichrist, end quote. The ten horns, ten, ten horns, then, are future kings, as is the little horn, a future king. And actually, this is a place where the idealist can agree with the futurist, that this is the antichrist figure we see in many of the New Testament texts. Now, just because if someone's following really closely, and you know the viewpoints well, I just want to make sure I say this. I do think, I'm, I hold to this idealist view, and I do think that this beast's power was stripped from him at the cross in some significant way. But I don't think that this passage is talking about that. This passage in Daniel 7 is referring to a future time after Satan's dominion is restored to him for a limited period. And verses 9 through 12 tell us of his demise. That scene in 9 through 12, the ancient of days seated in judgment and the fourth beast is vanquished. The idealist view sees this as final judgment. Final judgment. Perhaps the single greatest weakness of the other two views that I did not previously reference already is that their lenses, when they put those on, demand that this, verses 9 through 12, not be final judgment. That's actually, I would argue, the biggest weaknesses of both the preterist and purely futurist view of Daniel 7. 
is they have to have, in their lens view of this, they have to read this clear passage and say, that's not final judgment, because it won't fit with their view otherwise. But the correlation between these verses, 9 through 12, and final judgment as described in Revelation 20 is unmistakable. I want to read for you 9 through 12, and then Revelation 20, that passage right there. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. That's what we see happening in what Daniel saw. He observed a vision of this kind of fiery destruction. Books open, one seated on a throne, uh, power and glory, uh, masses, hordes of people standing before him. Listen to Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, which takes place after the Millennium there. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. You might remember in Daniel 7, the beasts came out of the sea. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The similarities between these two are so clear and obvious that only if you have a lens that demands you see this in another place in history will you see it in a different way. If you were to search all of sacred scripture, you would not find another passage that more closely parallels this one. If you were to look, Daniel 7, all the events, throne of whiteness, uh, hordes standing before him, books open, judgment leveled, fiery death. There's only one. And it's Revelation 20. Both the preterist and futurist see Daniel's vision as referring to something else entirely. They have to see it other ways. And I contend that this is because those views are looking at this text through the wrong lens. They have to see it that way, otherwise it undermines the whole view. Verses 13 through 14 then tell us of the Son of Man approaching the ancient, ancient of days. Ancient of days. And he's given dominion. Now I agree with the preterist that Jesus received all authority at his ascension, or just prior to it, at that event. But I do not believe that is the event to which this is referring. So I can affirm, yes, Jesus is in all authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him already. He is ruling and reigning right now, yes. But I don't think that's what this text is talking about. In the idealist view, this scene describes not the inauguration of Jesus at his first coming, but the consummation of his kingdom at his second coming. So what is being highlighted in this vision is not the Son of Man's first coming, his establishing of the church that would swell and grow, but the finality of it in its conclusion. Now, 
Technically, this is a point of agreement between the idealist and the futurist. Technically, this future-looking camp agrees with what I just said, that this is referring to Jesus' second coming. The biggest difference will be in what the idealist versus the futurist thinks happens next. The, the futurist says, well, there's still a thousand more years to play out. Well, while the idealist goes, we're done. History's finished. New heavens and new earth. That's the difference there. Remember the next three times that that term son of man is interpreted, it swaps out son of man for saints of the most high. That's why it says right here in verse 18, it doesn't refer to the son of man receiving dominion, which he certainly does. But it highlights that that's a representation of all the saints. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. He says it again in verse 22. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. He'll say it yet again in verse 27. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. All three times that it articulates what happened in the vision. It says that it's the saints who received the kingdom. That's what's being highlighted in this vision. And when does that take place? When does the Bible emphasize the reign of the saints on earth? Not merely in a spiritual sense from heaven, because these beasts did not reign in a mere spiritual sense from heaven. Their reign was on the earth. It affected the plants and the trees and the people and the animals and the rivers and all the material world. So I think that this, the reigning of the saints should correspond with that. It shouldn't be, well, we reign in a spiritual sense way over here while, while the beasts actually reign in a material grounded sense on earth. I think that it's meaning they used to reign here, now we get that and we reign here. I think that's what's being stated. And when does that happen? When does that earthly reign take place for us? After final judgment. Revelation chapter 2 says that the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, Jesus says, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. Just as I have received authority from my father, ascension, someday the saints will receive authority in reigning. At the end of the revelation, Revelation 22, it says, a night will be no more. And this describes the new heavens and new earth. It says, there will be no need of light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. And that they there refers to the saints who reign in Christ in the new heavens. 2 Timothy 2.12 even says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. When will the reign of the saints come? The reign that's being described in Daniel 7? after the new heavens and the new earth are established. The vision of the Son of Man ushers in the new heavens and new earth. One of the greatest, I think, um, benefits or advantages to this particular view is that it emphasizes what the text emphasizes. The finality of the vision as described. The idealist view of this text is the only lens that sees the finality, the ultimate nature that this text is meant to convey. The futurist expects that there will be 1,000 years of history that will follow the events of this vision. People living and dying, cities being built and changed, world history spinning on that will culminate in a numberless horde of God's enemies coming against his saints for war and die in crazy bloodshed. The preterist expects that there may be 10,000 years of history following the vision of Daniel 7, 
a period in which countless Christians are being beheaded for their faith, where wars and famine and bloodshed and all the horrors of godless men are inflicted on this earth just as we are experiencing right now until the church eventually grows to overcome and overwhelm the tribulations at some point in our future. I think that neither of these views can satisfy the final and glorious nature of the kingdom of Christ mentioned here, the ultimate sense in which these passages seem to convey. I want to conclude just by saying this. We need to remember why this was written. I introduced saying that this is a bit different than some of the other uh, texts that we walk through. If this is your first time to the Mission Church and you're looking for a good church home, maybe come back again and see a little bit more typical way that we go through texts. But these really do matter. And they are important. And as a pastor, I'm concerned that many of my brothers and sisters in Christ have not considered that you might need to view some of these passages through distinct lenses, and that may help you in your Christian life. It may keep you from avoiding important texts of the Bible. It may actually help you grow and mature in your understanding of some of these kinds of texts. And it's a crushing blow to the ego when we realize, oh, I was, sorry, wrong, wrong lenses. My hope is that as we grow together, we'll continue to see these things and love each of these texts in the Bible. But I want to conclude this morning just by saying this. We need to remember why this was written. This is, this is bread and butter for us at the Mission Church. We want to be careful to not apply or, or not try to claim that the main point of the text is something different than what it is. What's the main point of this text? Why did God deliver this vision to Daniel, interpret it with an angel, and have it recorded for all of human history? to distinguish between the temporary and terrifying nature of the earthly kingdoms and the eternal and glorious nature of Christ's eternal kingdom preserved for us. This morning, we're going to share communion together as saints. And the only way that we can do that is because we have been adopted into one family, one household. We come to one dinner table, so to speak. And as believers, we are waiting for an inheritance We are awaiting something future, and that is eternal life, where we get to see the face of God forever and ever and be in his presence where he will be with us and we will be with him. And if you are a believer today, if that eternity has been secured for you by the blood of Jesus Christ alone, then you are welcome to come forward as one of the brothers and sisters in Christ and partake of the elements of communion. The Bible says that a person should examine himself Then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is the warning from the Bible that says that if you're not a believer, just wait. Let the the believers present go ahead and enjoy this meal. But you don't have to be a member of our church or even agree with all the parts and pieces of what I just said about the end times in order to partake. We know that our Lord and Savior came to die for us. That his body was actually broken. And his blood was actually shed. And just as the elements you're about to hold in your hands are actually there in your hands, he actually lived on this earth and gave his life up for us. And it was a great demonstration of God's love for us to do so while we were still sinners. I'm going to pray to conclude our sermon. And when I say amen, you're welcome to come up and take of the elements out of the two communion tables that are here. Uh, Just grab a stack of cups from either of these tables. It has the bread and the cup both stacked together. Bring them back to your seats, and we'll take uh, all together as a church family. Let's pray. Father, we love and trust you and your word. 
Father, I pray that we would grow in our love for every category of doctrine, that we wouldn't give emphasis to what your word doesn't give emphasis to. We wouldn't uh, rush off after our hobby doctrines, but that, Father, at the same time, we would also not throw out important passages of Scripture. We would seek to understand and know better, uh, that we would try to overwhelm our own presuppositions. Father, help us to approach texts like this with humility. Help us to learn and scrutinize, and, and as brothers and sisters in Christ, to let our days be filled with talking about the truths you've laid out in Scripture, that they will shape our lives, that our, that our minds will be filled with truths from your Scripture more than images from Instagram and posts on Facebook. Father, I pray that this challenge would go out and my brothers and sisters would love your word so much that it would dominate their minds. Lord, we trust in what you have planned out. We know that you are holy and true. We will be eager to change our views to whatever is true because you alone are true. God, thank you for the way you've given us these things. And not only your word, but you've given your holy, blessed Logos, your word incarnate, Jesus Christ, to live here on earth in a perfect life, to teach truth with every word that he spoke, to sacrifice and lay down his life as a punishment for sins for all of us who will ever believe. Father, thank you for that. Help us to participate in this meal this communion time in such a way that is honoring to King Jesus. And we pray these things in Jesus' good and holy name. Amen.